You're listening to the Living with Licensing podcast, brought to you by Asgard Media. L-I-C-E-N-S-I-N-G, news and info, stuff is happening, here's the place you've got to go, for the cool kids in the know. Now here's your host, Kelvin Gardner. Thank you for downloading this latest episode of Living with Licensing, and I'm delighted to have with us as our guest this week, Will Stewart. Hello, Kelvin, and congratulations on the first licensing podcast. I'm uh, overjoyed to be joining the, uh, the panellists. Oh, well, thank you. Well, it's congratulations all around. Of course, you're coming on the back of being point, uh, appointed the brand ambassador of the year from uh, last week's Brand and Lifestyle Awards, which is a great achievement. Yes, thank you very much. It's, it's amazing. I've, uh, I've had a huge amount of um, love across the industry. <laughs> Uh, in the last sort of 10 days, a real whirlwind uh, and a real honour to win it. Again, sort of uh, seeing your name up alongside uh, licensing greats and uh, industry legends is, is quite a special feeling. So, yeah, hugely, uh, hugely proud and excited to win it. Terrific. And so, well, well, I always ask our guests to just give us a little resume of where they're at now. And that's absolutely uh, to the point, not meant to be a, uh, a pun. Uh, so tell us a little bit about the company you founded a few years ago, which has led to this award you've just won. Yeah, so I uh, founded the, the Point 1888 in, uh, in 2014, um, had a sort of six-month period of just trying to find out what it, what it was exactly we were going to do. Um, but we you know, ultimately settled on uh, becoming the next generation of licensing. And mm. I think, you know, the industry is amazing. I, I totally fell in love with it after spending my whole career in retail, really. Yeah. Um, and just really found it a special place and a, a place where you could start a business and, and try to do things differently. Yeah. Um, it's a very caring industry and it's one that, you know, I think it's very open and flexible and you know, very well suited to, you know, the current nightmare we're living in. And it's a really supportive industry. You know, the amount of people when you start up that will, you know, come out of the woodwork and, and find ways to help you was, was quite overwhelming. So yeah, started up um, and we needed to have a, a different approach or something unique. Um, you know, starting a brand licensing agency is, you know, has low barriers to entry. So it's a, it's a good business to start, mm-hmm. uh, you know, built on your network and your contacts and, and those sorts of things. Um, but it's also very competitive. And, mm. you know, we're in a, a very, very difficult market. Um, you know, we're all tied to the difficulties that retail are having. Um, yes. So ultimately, I you know, wanted to you know, focus on the retail end of the, the licensing um, equation or uh, supply chain. Yeah. And actually, you know, thinking about that as the demand side of the business um, rather than supply, which is mm-hmm. obviously the IP, the brand, yeah. brand owners, and help retail buyers understand the value of licensing and, and what it can bring them um, mm. and help them understand the problems they have and how brands and licensing can actually solve their problems. So, you know, we came up with the term retail-focused brand extension, yeah. um, and that's what we've delivered ever since. Okay, and are, and, are, and are doing very successfully to this day. And we'll talk a little bit more about the uh, unique nature of um, the point 1888 as we get in this. But just tell us about your background, be your, be, when you were growing up, your education, before you, the world of work entered into the, the world of Will Stewart. 
Well, I, I had a, I, I was very, very lucky. I was listening to some of the, the previous uh, podcasts and uh, listening to how, you know, people didn't have such an easy time. But, you know, I had an idyllic childhood, a fantastic family, a really good environment. So, you know, I was really lucky growing up. Um, I had a great education. I went to school in, in southeast London and, and grew up there. Um, and then I was lucky enough to go up to Leeds University and, and study international business and marketing. Interesting choice um, that, Will, if you don't mind. I'm, I'm a northerner myself, although from the other side of the Pennines. But uh -huh. um, we, we're always interested when somebody not from our area was attracted to the north. What was it that uh, appealed to you about Leeds? Well, A, I wanted to go to a, a, a big city that was a long way from London and my parents. Um, <laughs> right, yeah. And... Um, yeah, and the, the, you know, I absolutely adore Leeds, and the North, you know, is is different from from us uh, Southern softies, <laughs> and uh, it's a it's a big learning experience to sort of go go away and and understand how uh, how how things are up north, and it was amazing. I think you get a lot of uh, I don't know an understanding of how important humour is in in uh, in life, and yeah, you know, and the love and support that. Yeah, there's a real camaraderie uh, from into a from a town like Leeds, or and I, I think you know, probably the same with Manchester, Liverpool, etc. You know, London is a very, very diverse, stretching, and and sort of quite a cold place at times. Mm. Um, and it's so big, and it, it's so uh, I don't know, split. Whereas you know, you can go to somewhere like Leeds, and it's a real passion for what that town and and Yorkshire in general stands for. Yeah. So yeah, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Um, and then loved it so much that I, I, I immediately moved back to London. But, uh, <laughs> well, that's but, yeah, that's, it was a very special time. Yeah. Well, that, well, that's good to know. But quite often, especially in, uh, I imagine when it came to the serious business of um, retailing, London was the focus on that. But uh, how did you find your way into work in the first instance? Then, what was your first job? Uh, so, well, my first job was actually doing a paper round. Okay. Delivering, uh, I was age 14, I think, delivering yeah. the new shopper. Um, and it, I mean, I hated it, but it was <laughs> like, I think a lot of people, you know, you are told by your parents, money doesn't go on trees and mm -hmm. you want stuff in life. Yeah. Then you need to get out and, and earn money. So I think yeah. I, you know, I earned £2.85 an hour and I used to drag around this the ugliest trolley in the world <laughs> full of uh, local newspapers that mm. nobody wanted. Mm. Um, and I, I sort of, you know, I realized that you had to sort of graph to get money. Um, and it was a really good lesson. I also learned that some of the other paper boys would just dump all the papers in a skip and still pick up their, their yeah, yeah, yeah. wage. What happened to the ABC circulation figures on those? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> But I just sort of, uh, I don't know, I got a good work ethic in that I hated the job, but I needed the job. And um, so I never did dump the papers. Um, yeah. And yeah, it was a good start. And then I, I worked in, in pubs mainly, um, sort of uh, learning a lot about customer service and relationships and, uh, and that side of things. Um, yeah. Before, yeah, my first, I guess, proper job um, is that after you know after your degree was that you, you're talking now or um, before no these were all yeah this was yeah. all sort of while I was studying and, yeah. and things like that yeah um, and then actually uh, I think in between my second and third years I did a I did a sort of job placement with um, a loft ladder company which okay. was um, 
it was, again, amazing experience because it was a small company um, and they had some incredible sales guys in there and they basically fitted uh, loft ladders to yeah. all around Southeast London. And so I sort of learned how to sort of sell and how marketing works. You know, we ran yeah. Yeah. News, well, ironically, newspaper advertising campaigns in the newspapers. That yes. Jumped in skips. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I learned about marketing and sales. There were, there were some incredible sales guys there. And, you know, and I also got to see firsthand of the stresses and strains of running a small business, mm-hmm. you know, on, yeah. on, um, on James, who, who ran the ran. Uh, BPS. Yeah, it's still going strong now. Yeah, now that that could have been quite uh, insightful for you because again, the the work you subsequently did that we come up with working for large companies, you won't get quite that intimate understanding of what the owner faces, would you? Well, no, not at all. And you, I I think, when you, I mean, most companies and most work is quite chaotic. I think, and when you study it, you know, if you study business or economics or accounting, you know, everything's perfect in theory. And then mm. there's no, there's nothing that's better for your experience, knowledge and wisdom than actually going to work and seeing how things are in the real world. And I remember when I worked in small companies, I thought, well, yeah, I expect it to be a bit chaotic. Um, but the big companies, um, you know, if you work for a big player, everything's going to be smooth and mm-hmm. efficient. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I got a job working in Sainsbury's head office in Blackfriars um, just after I, I left uni, actually. Hence the return to London. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And um, an amazing company. But I mean, it was more chaotic, actually. Okay. More company. It was just yeah. chaotic on a bigger, <laughs> a bigger scale. And I, I think right. what you, what you realise is you know, business is hard and it's hard whatever business you're in. And everyone's sort of trying to find their way and, and what they're what they're doing and um find their sort of unique points um but you know at Sainsbury's I I worked for an incredible guy John Robson um who was really inspirational and and sort of believed in me I was sort of just a kid I knew about spreadsheets so I was just watching numbers um running all the uh analysis on their promotions um and it was just a great exposure to a a big company b um a great boss um and see, you know, retail in general, and you sort of realize that retail is, you know, the biggest, I mean, it's the biggest in industry for employment in this country. Yeah. Um, it gives most people uh, or a lot of people their first experience of a job. And it's absolutely essential, um, mm. regardless of which stores are currently classed as essential. Yeah. Um, and, and obviously with everything moving online, but, you know, people, humans love going shopping and love mm. What's there? So it was just a, a really good first job, and I, I guess my big thing out of that was, you know, I had to go and see all the buyers on all the different floors yeah. in Sainsbury's, and yeah, talk about their upcoming promotions and and the, give them the analysis of the previous ones. Um, and I remember going to see the biscuit buyer, right? And this guy was like my hero. He was surrounded by just boxes of amazing biscuits. <laughs> Right, um, and I remember he'd done. Um, he was doing a promotion with Jaffa cakes, where they did a fully chocolate encased Jaffa cake, mm-hmm. and he just had all the samples arrive. And I was, I sort of was down there thinking, "Well, this is what I, this buying thing is amazing. He gets loads <laughs> of free, amazing food." Yeah. So you know, it was probably really at that. I think it was probably about what was I twenty one, maybe. 
and I, I just sort of knew from that point that you know I, I wanted to be a part. good in that area. Yeah, these guys, yeah. this is exactly what I wanted to do. Yeah. Oh well, I, I had a first year in retail myself after university, uh, Will. So I, I didn't stick at it for very long. But uh, interesting, the point you just made about the importance of it, and that was the the thing that I found annoying in my one year at retail was that the, the our customers had no appreciation for the work that brought the, that put the products on the shelf that they wanted to buy. <laughs> Yeah. And there has been finally a little bit of that during the key worker recognition of lockdown, hasn't there? Finally, somebody's, yeah. it doesn't, doesn't appear by, as if by magic before your very eyes in the store. But there you go. No, it's an incredible amount that goes on and it's very painful on the feet. Well, <laughs> that's, that's, that's very that's true. painful. That's true, especially until you get your store legs to agree. That's definitely true. <laughs> <Yeah. isn't it? laughs> um, but I, 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 I hit that you actually went into the Kingfisher uh, graduate development program because we um, we previously had um, Vicky O'Malley was on. She was also a, a Woolworths um, graduate, I suppose, as well. But uh, so tell me about that. Tell me about the Kingfisher graduate graduate program. Yeah, so I, you know, I wanted to to work in retail, and I think it's sort of just following the the rules. You know, I was I think it's the first person in my family to go to university, and yeah, you know, you were there to to learn, and you know, I did learn. I did most of the work in, in year three, but, you know, I, I learned and I wanted to get onto a graduate job. It was sort of something that I think um, you know, my mum and dad would be very proud about. And the Kingfisher one was the, the best one, in my opinion, at the time. They yeah. owned Woolies and Superdrug and B&Q and, um, you know, a load of different retailers. Um, and they were offering a really, you know, good training program. And I just sort of thought, well, you know, I, I really like retail when I when I did some work at Sainsbury's and yeah. just thought, you know, don't know exactly what I want to do, but buying is the is the most exciting option. So, you know, joined that program. And yeah, the, the strange thing is I'd, I'd gone traveling for a year after my time at, at Sainsbury's and, and gone around South and Central America and through mm-hmm. Europe. And, and then I did a a. Uh, a development program in in Borneo in Indonesia. Oh, really? With, yeah. Um, with orangutans building building their sort of um, I don't know, sort of their tourist tracks and things like that. Incredible oh, yes. experience. I bet. Yeah. Working in the rainforest, and then I sort of came back, and I think it's about two days that I suddenly went straight back into work. And the first part of the placement, which I think is is absolutely key if you want to know how retail works, is to yeah. work on the on the on the shop floor. Of course, yeah. So I was suddenly put in as a assistant store manager in Woolworths in Staines mm-hmm. out West. And, um, you know, it was probably more of a shock being <laughs> planted into Woolies for the, yes. golden, for the golden quarter. Right. Than it was arriving in the rainforest. You know, okay. The business at the time, and this would have been, gosh, I don't know when this was, 90, 2001, maybe. Yeah. Okay. Like that. It was when Ali G exploded okay. uh, mm. across the airwaves, and he was from Staines, of course. And I oh, right, yeah. Staines, <laughs> working in Staines. But those, I mean, that Christmas was, you know, incredibly hard work. And that, talking about getting your store legs, I don't think I gained them. We'd do 14, 15 hours de- <laughs> yeah. days. And yeah. Woolies was the place. I mean, A, it was fantastic for licensed um, Of course it was. It was the they were the kings of licensing, no doubt about it at all. Yeah. Yeah. And it was it had a great history and it had invented so many innovations in, in retail. And um and of course it was the Christmas shop at the time. Yeah. So, you know, we sold so much stuff. I 
I, I found it amazing how much stuff was was sold um, during that time. And um, I can remember I used to, I was just stocking up crackers. I think it was for about three or four days. And I had this little trolley and I'd go to the, you know, to the little lift that was coming down from the stock room, load it up with crackers and then try and get it over to the shelf where the crackers yeah. were stocked. And the customers were like, it was like something out of a zombie apocalypse. <laughs> you know, they were just fighting over yeah. you and yeah. the crackers. And, you know, I never ever got near the, uh, yes, okay. got near the shell. <laughs> the, the whole, the whole of Woolies at Christmas was like being in a, in a queue. I mean, it was, yeah. it was a crazy, crazy time, but you realized how important that retailer was at the time. Yeah. Um, and secondly, how, again, from a, from a cold face point of view, how much stuff people buy and consume and the decisions they're making. Mm. So, um, yeah, I sort of did six months in, in store and then was quite relieved and have been quite honored ever since to be able to sit down at work uh, <laughs> right. ever since then. And you realize how, what a privilege that is, right? Absolutely, but but invaluable that you actually knew what it was like at, at the sharp end before you did sit down. Oh, completely. I, I went. My next role was in space planning, which is uh, all right. Yeah, working on planograms. So basically, the guys that work out what's going to go on which shelves yeah. and uh, make sure that everything fits in. Yeah, and as a you know, you want to uh, you want to cram it in. Ultimately, you're trying mm. to sell stuff. <laughs> I remember, you know, knowing very real how it is the other end when you receive the planogram from uh, from the ivory tower in HQ. Yeah, yeah. Trying to squeeze, you know, ten boxes of crackers clearly into yeah. a space that only fits four. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it was it was good. I, I think anyone who who's interested in retail uh, should go and spend some time on a shop floor because you, you you will see it all. You will see it all, particularly yes. over a, yeah. a Christmas season. Yes, you will. It's a, there's a never-ending um, variety of human interaction that nobody can anticipate. I think is the is the, is the truth of that, undoubtedly. So, um, Kingfisher, then, what was the? Well, you even, you mentioned Big W to me. I don't think I ever got into a Big W store. Well, what was the concept behind that? Can you remember what was the, what was the point? Yeah, of that was it. Was a really exciting one. So they, they what was really good about Woolies is that it was. You know, it was really innovative in its retail processes at the time, and it, it you know, it's, it's it's sad. I think anyone who worked there would would feel sad that it's it's gone now. But they were trying out a lot of new concepts. So there were these big, you know, big W um, stores in Australia, which all oh, right, yeah, yeah, you know, the first big out of town warehouses that sold everything. Yeah, um, and and what Kingfisher were doing is saying, well, let's put a super drug, a Woolies, a, a B&Q and, and all the others and put them all under one roof. Yeah. A Comet, yeah. they had Comet, the electrical retailer as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they just created these massive warehouses. They also did something called Woolworths General Store, which was you know bringing food in and, and doing a sort of local high street. So I managed to get uh, to work uh, with some really uh, entrepreneurial people at that time. Um, and, you know, eventually found my way into buying. Yeah, um, but I, I, you know, I, I know it was like about seven or eight interviews for an <laughs> assistant buyer that I'd failed yeah. at, and you know, I remember clearly thinking, oh, it's just, it's just not for me. Buying is competitive; it's a very competitive world. Yeah, but um, I think it was at the eighth attempt, eighth attempt, and I got this job, assistant buyer of baby care, right. W, and yeah. Uh, yeah, and that, and basically, it was straight into talking about nappies, and okay. what was yeah. like 22, 23, or something like that. I mean, I knew nothing about nappies. I, I didn't care about nappies. I had no interest. 
Um, but suddenly, you know, I was there with, with you know, P&G talking about Pampers. Yeah. Um, and why, you know, why nappies were so important. So Yes, yes, indeed. And isn't that why interesting that uh, observation, Will, because isn't it the case that quite often licensing staff have difficulty uh, presenting a new children's brand to buyers for the same reason that the buyers are too young to have children themselves so can't get what the salesman's talking about you know absolutely the buyers you know i don't know if it's just as you get older you think the buyers are getting younger and younger. <laughs> the buyers are genuine genuinely getting younger younger. yeah 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 it's, it's really difficult you know buying is you know generally a younger person's game it's a high pressure job um very, very stressful. And yeah, a lot of buyers in the big businesses are younger mm. than your traditional child and family based ages. So, you know, a lot of them don't get the relevance of a lot of the, the products because it's just not in there. You know, it's not in there. Yes, of course. Time. Yeah. And it means for us as, you know, licensing professionals, we've got to really explain to them in their terms why these things are important. Mm. You know, good, the good buyers will get it. Um, and good buyers really can buy can buy anything. This was a, a phrase that went around the industry. And in that you know you've got to listen to people, and 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 you know you've got to trust some of your suppliers. The reality is everyone's trying to sell you stuff because you know, Woolies at the time had eight hundred and sixty shops. You know you yeah. realize the power, yeah. the yeah. buying power, and the depth and the volume yeah. you were buying. So you, you sort of have to be on your guard, and you know you've got to feel that most people are gonna you know get rich if they sell something to you. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but you know, you can find the people, the suppliers, the, the people in your network that are genuine and they are bringing you good opportunities. And, you know, being on the other side now, when we go and talk to buyers, we're always trying to explain why these things can help them achieve what they need to, to achieve. And yeah, I think if you solve problems for buyers, they, they'll love you forever. Yeah. I think bring them solutions is what I've heard is yeah. a term that they, they looking for really. By this time, you, you'd got you've gone to the John Lewis partnership, and it, it, you finally got in touch with licensing. I think when you were in that role, is that how that happened eventually? Yeah, I sort of um, worked through lots of different buying jobs at, at Woolies, um, and had seen brands, licensed brands. It was during the Bratz, the first, oh, right. first yeah. brand of Bratz. Um, but you know, if you want to work in buying and in retail generally in this country, you, you want to work for John Lewis. So I'd, I'd spent a good six, six months, I think, trying to get into John Lewis. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, and it was a you know, huge step up. I, I worked in, in sort of strategy, working for one of the directors. So again, really good exposure. I had a really good boss there, Maureen, who, you know, liked breaking rules in a business okay. that was full of rules. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, got back into buying again. So I, I managed to buy men's shoes and luggage and then went back uh, to buy in homeware. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, I'd bought lots and lots of different things, everything from nappies to Kit Kats and towels yeah. and toilet brushes. And I love product brands and, and retail. And, you know, the, the journey, you know, the question in our, the question of our industry is how did you get into licensing? That's the one yes, that's right. we ask everyone else. Yeah. And everyone says, well, it was an accident, really, or mm. I don't know, it just happened. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I guess that's our sort of common commonality between us all, because, for me, I, I was a buyer. Um, the Harlequin um, Design House was a was a brand. Yeah. Um, I was buying towels at the time, and I wanted Harlequin products. 
I wanted the Harlequin IP and designs and creative on towels, and it right. just didn't exist. Okay. So uh, I, and I, I didn't know what I was doing, but now I do know what I was doing. <laughs> course, but, you know, yeah. So I was thinking, right, well, yeah. who makes towels? Christie, yeah. they're the best. Yeah. They're our biggest towel supplier. Yeah. Well, sort of literally just said, right, you know, I want you to make towels from them. Uh, yeah. Can you two just get on and do it and, and <laughs> yes. I'll buy them? Yeah. And, um, you know, it, you know, it's Alison at Harlequin and, and Maxine and Christy, both of whom I still work with now. It's, they sort of went off and did their magic and I bought them. And I, yeah. I sort of, you know, subsequently, three years later, realized I'd actually done my first licensing deal. I just yes. didn't, didn't know it. Yes, of course. I understood. Yeah. No, you bet. That, that's the sort of license or dream, of course, isn't it? The buyer deciding what the license he wants to stock and what product to and, and coming at it in reverse, which I guess is, again, fundamental to the way the point eighteen eighty eight opposite operates now. Uh, yeah. It, yeah. The first deal I did was retail led. Um, yeah. And I think they just they are the best ones. You've got to be careful about giving buyers too much input and, and letting them dictate because they, they love to do that. But you want to get their engagement and you want mm. to understand what, what they're trying to do. Yeah. And I think it just de-risks the whole process. You know, there's tons of IP out there. The supply side is, is, is huge. There's loads of amazing brands, loads of amazing, amazing designers. There's incredible YouTube channels. You know, there's lots of brands that, you know, are worthy of, of being licensed or extended and, and, you know, allowing their fans to engage with them. Yeah. I think the big problem is, you know, signing licensing deals is one part of it and finding a manufacturer who wants to, to pay for an IP. Yeah. It's sort of just trying to find your space on shelf in a very, very, you know, competitive and congested world in a, in a market, i.e. retail, that's having a really, really awful time. And I think now with things changing with direct selling and, you know, selling on TikTok and, and yes. Instagram, there's ways of engaging with, you know, your micro niche of fans who are mm. much more engaged. So there's, there's space for everyone and the industry's growing anyway. But it, it's just that bit, you know, you, you get the deal, but you just can't get it listed anywhere. Mm. And that's that's yeah. one of the biggest reasons why licensing deals fail. And mm. I sort of thought if we can solve that problem, you know, it makes it very easy for the licensee particularly who, yes. you know, I think in a lot of the rest of the industry, the licensees sort of, I don't know. There's always a feeling they're sort of last to the table, mm -hmm. you know, in, yeah. in the banks and recognition, and and they do such a huge amount of work. And I sort of know that from my my time as a buyer. When you think yeah. about, you know, the investment they have to put in in development and design, and then you know manufacturing the products and shipping the products and storing yes. the products yeah. and importing the products, and then the payment terms that retail are awful. And it's yes, a, that's it's right. a really really tough life being a licensee. Yeah. yeah. Um, so if we could, you know, de-risk their opportunity and say, well, actually, you know, John Lewis want to buy mugs on this brand and you yeah. want mugs, do you want to, do you want to do it? Yeah, generally their feeling is, well, yeah, because it's less risk than in trying something that I don't know I've got a customer for. Yes, indeed. That's, um, that's right. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I just think it's, it's a better way of doing things. And, you know, you see it more and more now that, you know, retail, retailers are, are, are more open to licensing and i think agents a lot of them now spend a lot of time with retailers helping them solve problems yes so it's, it's yeah. a beautiful thing to see yeah when it all comes together i agree entirely so but all this time you were building your career in buying that your family had been in business for a long long time previously and and, and i gather that history was one of the reasons why you decided to go out on your own. Just, just tell us a little bit about the family company background. 
Yeah, so um, my great-great-grandfather, Joseph Thomas Miller, um, he started his business in, um, in October 1888, 18, yeah. <laughs> uh, hence yeah. the, and it's a beautiful number, it's an absolutely <laughs> beautiful number, um, and hence the, you know, the, the call out in our own name, yeah. uh, back to them, and they used to, yeah, he started business age 27, okay. the day, on the day his son was born, which having had children now is like, crikey, <laughs> I mean, that, man, that man must have been a legend, right? um, and ironically, it did, you know, it, it manufactured PPE in, in Borough in um, wow. yeah. South London. So they had factories and they'd make uh, clogs, you know, so footwear for people that worked in factories, making yes. yeah. and aprons and, uh, and gloves and all those sorts of things. And they're all made in central London, which is ridiculous mm. in its own way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the story goes that they had, there was a jam factory over the road and they, uh, and the guys who worked in the jam factory all wore suits. So they used to <laughs> would come in in sacks, these old uh, Hessian sacks. So they used to cut them up and make them into aprons. And, right, um, yeah. To protect mm. their suits. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Joseph Thomas Miller wandered over and spoke to the guy and said, well, I'll, I'll make you aprons. And that's how he started. Mm, and, okay. you know, I love the idea that they just sort of looked in each other's eyes and shook hands <laughs> and went, yep, we've got a business relationship. Whereas now we're all on DocuSign and, Yes, forty-eight page contract. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, he sort of started it, and then it, it you know went through four generations um, in various places and stuff, through to my my dad, um, who you know we it sort of scaled back. I think I, I think you know any manufacturing stopped, obviously a lot of, mm, of course, yeah, and, yeah. You know, it became a sort of uh, a sales business primarily, and. Um, you know, dad kept it going during horrific recession of, of you know, 1980s mm. and, and various other positions and sort of took it home and then sort of, um, you know, just, I guess, sort of slowed it all down until I was in a position to say, well, look, we'll take on, you know, the brand and the heritage. Um, he was determined to get to 130 years, which he did in, in 2018. Yeah. Uh, and we had a, a big 130th year party. And then sort of just absorbed that into our business a little bit. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so starting a business always in my blood. Um, you know, I have been talking about it since I've, I think I've been born. So, you know, I was always <laughs> going to do it. Yeah. I think it's just always tricky to find, you know, something you're really passionate about. Yes. In industry that, you know, is, re is really, really exciting, basically. Yeah, absolutely right. And so that, that came the point then when you decided to, to make the move and you, you you clearly had a particular vision for the type of licensing agency you wanted you know right from day one so just tell us a little bit about that insight yeah we wanted to be purpose a purpose and values driven business so yeah, one of the first things i did was sort of work on the brand values of the business mm -hmm. um, so family attitude ambition and trust um and you know i think it was I don't, I don't know. It's like when you start something and you're trying, I was also still trying to work out exactly what we were going to do. And you pitch and talk to, you know, as many people as you can saying about your business. And, you know, we'd set up these values of, you know, I just wanted to be a, a, a truly honest and an open business. Yeah. Because I think agencies get a hard time for being very salesy or, mm -hmm. yeah. just, you know, selling and marketing generally. I mean, marketing's full of, you know, fluff and sizzle. So, I yeah. just wanted to try and get cut through on that and be open and honest about everything we did. So got the values first and then, 
um, you know, we wanted to have a purpose. We wanted to make things better, make the world a better place. Yeah. Um, and for me, there were two parts of the purpose. I mean, one is, you know, we give 11% of our profits to charity and that is really important because it allows the team to feel there's purpose to this. Yes. Mm. We do brand extension. It's not, you know, we're not doctors and nurses. It's, it's not life and death. Yeah. But when you, you know, I remember one of the first ones we donated to was Essex Air Ambulance and they, you know, it's a charity. It's not paid for by the taxpayer. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we were able to, to give them some, some a donation and, you know, one, a few months later landed on the M11 and there was a crash there and you know, they airlifted someone to, to hospital and you think, well, okay, we only contributed, I think, 40, 50%, I think, of that trip, that mm. one trip, because helicopters are expensive, um, yeah. uh, landing them on motorways and all that. Um, yeah. But, you know, we were able to think, well, actually, we did make a difference um, because, you know, we worked hard, we made money, we donated, and actually, you know, hopefully someone someone had their life saved. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the second part of our purpose was about work in general, you know, in... in you know, this working from home thing or just think about how work works and just the ultimate irony of, of saying, you know, I, I want the, the right work-life balance. Mm. So for me, is it should be a, a life-work balance. Right. So, you know, we basically set up this policy ultra-flexibility and I just sort of thought, well, anyone that works, comes and works for us is going to have full freedom. You know, they will work from where they want, whenever they want, whatever hours they want, um, unlimited holiday. This very sort of, yeah. well, it's the thing everyone told me I was mad to do at <laughs> work, actually. Um, but it was something I was really passionate about. You know, you see, I think particularly parents when, you know, they've, they've got a career and then they have children and their priorities change and the way they work changes. And the world of work didn't seem to work for them anymore. Mm, I understand. And yeah. having children myself I, I totally get it so I just wanted to be able to offer work on their terms so yes there's work to be done but if it's if you trust your team and you know you communicate well and you set a task list people can work you know whatever time they want as long as they're delivering I really don't care when you know when they work okay. so you know we had this purpose around the people and giving them ultra flexibility and then purpose and giving money to charity and we were going to wrap all of that up in, you know, being being the kindest, nicest, honest, open people we could. Yes. And that's sort of the, the foundations of what we started. Okay. And I guess you can um, you could probably see the shine in the eyes of people you're considering taking on, whether they buy into that philosophy. Yeah. I think because not everybody not everybody would. You know, there are people it's who not like for everyone. Yeah, the hand of corporate sort of direction all the time to be comfortable and but and you're offering something quite different yeah yeah absolutely spot on i think a lot of people like the idea of it more than you know the reality it's not you know it's not easy to do you know you have a lot of other problems i mean the problems that everyone's dealing with now you know teams all over yeah. the place yeah you know, yeah very difficult to build a culture and build camaraderie and you know, it's difficult to train new young people that are joining and yeah, so we went through a lot of these sorts of, you know, difficult times on that side. Yeah. Um, and it is, you know, reality is it isn't for everyone. It's a huge amount of responsibility, particularly for, for younger people joining the workforce. Um, so, you know, it doesn't work for everyone, but the, the people it does work for, it changes their lives. And, yeah. you know, I've got, you know, 
Bethan, for example, when she joined, she wanted to take her boy swimming. And the only time she could do it was two o'clock on a Friday afternoon. Right. And, yeah. you know, she was traveling into London from Wales every, you know, for two yeah. days a week. You know, I was just like, yeah, go and, you know, go and take in swimming and then you can do whatever you want, you know, work whenever. So, yeah, yeah it changed her life. And, and it's the same. We do employ a lot of parents and a lot of mothers, particularly, whose lives you know, need to, to come first. Um, you know, they have other priorities than, than going to work. But, you know, if we can make it work around that, you know, they, it, it does change their life. They become incredibly loyal um, and they're incredibly efficient and incredibly good at their jobs. And mm. the weird thing is most other companies don't, you know, if someone wants to work part-time or, yep. you know, funny hours, like they've got to pick their kids up from school yep. at three, I think a lot of employers find that too scary or too risky. Yes. Um, so I sort of see it as like, you know, it's their loss. I used to tell everyone to do it. And then I thought, well, actually, I'm going <laughs> yeah. to find yeah. the most incredible people yeah. um, that have joined. And, it, and it's happened time and time again, hence yeah. why we've sort of grown the team so quickly. Yeah, exactly. But but I think you're right. Well, you, you, you won't um, maybe, maybe find other people copying you because you're right. It's it. It, as we're discovering people finding working from home tougher than they might have thought in terms of especially making sure they don't overwork from home which can be yeah. a, a possibility yeah, so. not knowing when to to switch on and switch off in that way but uh it's fantastic that you've got it working as a, a, a in a a small but i'm sure ever-growing corporation which is great um i, I think yeah that is it's all about personal responsibility and everyone knows you know we've all had a really tough time and everyone's been working incredibly hard and if you are at home you can work much longer than you would have done in an office without any of the breaks because you yes. just keep going yeah. so everyone's got to be quite you know responsible for their own you know mental health and personal awareness and, and the amount of time worked and it's easy to say that and then you know crack on like everyone does but you know balance is clearly the future um and just making sure that we look after ourselves and yeah you know, and set, set ourselves some limits when working from home, really. Exactly so. Anyway, a couple of things I just wanted to ask you before we, we wrap this session up, Willie. From so just tell me about, is there any, there must have been loads, but just give me an example of any, any meeting you've had, any particularly unusual or different meeting during your um, career, pre or post licensing that stands out in your memory. Uh, I think, I think my, I mean, the sort of favourite meeting, I think, was when, when I met, Richard Reed at Innocent because oh, yeah? Um, yeah. I, I, if, if your listeners want a good book to read about business, read the Innocent books. It's, it's incredible. And I'd read that and I love the brand and it was the only way I ever got fruit into me, which is exactly <laughs> right. I sort of made this guy, you know, a bit of a business hero of mine. And, yeah. you know, it was the circumstances of getting there really. I went to a, an auction um, and, uh, had probably more to drink than I thought and ended up bidding on this um you know get a it was a, a development session with Richard Reed a sort of three yeah. hour session and I thought oh, I was gonna yeah. bid for it and let someone outbid me but you get carried away at these things and suddenly yeah. I'd won <laughs> one in inverted commas and spent some money and thought well I'm gonna you know gonna meet the guy yeah um so then I just sort of came up with an idea of, of what I could do with the brand uh, which was pairing them up with Oliver Bonus to help yeah drive uh, the innocent picnic campaign and so i walked in and uh and he said also oh, right we're here for this development session and i sort of just said 
well yeah there is that but i also <laughs> wanted to just pitch this idea at you and yeah. uh and off i went and that was sort of really the start i think it was the first proper meeting we had at the point yeah um and so off off we went and it was yeah it was it was brilliant he's at the end he said i really like the idea but you know i don't i don't own innocent anymore um, right so okay. it was sort of like oh right okay <laughs> he did actually set us up with the, the good yeah. people um yeah. so yeah that was a yeah that was a good one i mean yeah just, quite a yeah, yeah, quite a different way of, <laughs> of uh, taking advantage of your uh, of your learning session there. I have to say, so um, that your auction prize, terrific stuff. And I, w- I was also going to ask you about, as I ask all our guests about favourite licenses. So I, I guess Innocent uh, would probably be amongst that. But w- what else stands out for you? Not necessarily the most profitable or the the, the one that brought it, but the, the ones that been most fun to work on in your licensing career. Yeah, I mean, Innocent would would probably be number one. I mean, my favourite brand is is actually the the British and Irish Lions. That's all oh, right. Okay. Now, and, you know, we've just done a, a our first summit on it, and it's just a special brand that is so relevant to today. A, a bit like Team G, uh, Team GB, sorry, where it's about unity and and teamwork and bringing people together in a time of uh, with Brexit and everything else, at a particularly un, unpleasant time. So. Yeah, the Lions was a, another dream client, um, and I think you know we we sort of cut our teeth or made our name a little bit on LOL Surprise. Ah, was, yes, yeah. You know, it was was a, one of those licensing phenomenal, you know, phenomenon brands yeah. that just takes off, and you know, every I think everyone in the industry is looking for the next big thing, and it's so difficult because there's so many good things, and there's so many circumstances that have to come together um it's all about momentum i think and every little meeting and what happens and you know we signed that and it just went bananas but it, it really allowed us to yeah. you know for me particularly allowed me to employ the people i wanted to employ and then yeah. you know work on you know some of the brands I, I really wanted to work on yeah so a great a great success enabling other success and other openings which is a, a great way to end a great attitude for licensing so Will, just want to thank you one more time for being with us on Living With Licensing. Great. Thank you very much. A big thank you to our sponsor, Dependable Solutions, the licensing management software specialists. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Living With Licensing, please tell your friends and colleagues.